what I'm talking about. Wait. Okay, now, from the beginning. Welcome to BS, Beyond Stereotypes, a podcast about lawyers using their authentic voices to change the world. I, on the other hand, have had to know how to navigate, you know, my community, my life as a a Black person, as a woman, as a first-gen professional, and, you know, kind of the larger mainstream um, community. And so, you know, my cultural kind of confidence index is much higher than it is for somebody who maybe hasn't had to learn, you know, the way that that people from other communities live. And so I actually have something really meaningful to bring to the table. And it doesn't help the, the people that I'm working with, and it doesn't help the cause overall if I hold back. Welcome to BS Beyond Stereotypes. I'm your host, Merle Vaughn. Here to BS with me today is my friend, Malik Jones, whose story I find fascinating and who will no doubt inspire all of you to embrace your authenticity. Hey, Malik, how are you? Hi, Merle, how are you? I'm good, thanks for joining me. I'm so delighted to be here with you. Well, it's my pleasure. And let me tell the folks a little bit about you. Uh, Malik is in New York, where it's probably freezing right now, but, um, and she is the executive vice president, chief people officer at the Lincoln Center for the Performing Arts. Um, She's been there for about nine months or so. Prior to that, uh, Malik spent 21, over 21 years at Skadden Arps uh in in New York uh in uh various positions um I met her when we were on the board uh on a board together that uh and we were uh in the on the diversity committee uh and uh before that Malik was uh in journalism and communications where she joined right out of college joined the Wall Street Journal uh, and um, worked also at Dow, Dow Jones and did that before, during, and after after law school. Um, and then finally, uh, uh, Malik is a proud graduate of the Brooklyn Law School uh, and also uh, received her undergraduate degree in journalism at NYU. Um, what did I leave out, Malik? Um, I think you you covered the basis, um, and I'm sure we'll talk about you know other um, important stops along the way in my life. Um, uh, but but you 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 got you got the you got the goods. Good. Yay. Um, so I like to start out. You know, I, I believe every life ha- uh, tells a story, and mm-hmm. you know, and our story is a journey. Uh, And I'm very intrigued by your journey. Uh, And so I'd like to start by having you uh, share with us, you know, where you're from, you know, what, what's your, what's your story, who influenced you, whether it was parents or teachers, you know, to be this, this badass that, that, that you've become. 
Ah, that that's such a big question, Merle, and I, I've thought about it a lot. Um, so I would say uh, when I think about sort of where I'm from and 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 sort of the essence of of who I am and and who I've become, two things come to mind. One is I am a proud native New Yorker. Um, you know, as a diversity, equity, and inclusion professional, I sometimes wince at the fact that New York is the only place I've lived. I sort of feel like, you know, I owe it to to my trade, if you will, to experience, you know, life in different cultures. But the beauty of New York is that you do sort of get all of that. So, so, yeah. so I live with that. Um, and the other thing that I think about immediately um, when folks say sort of, where are you from, is um, Harlem in particular. Okay. Um, Harlem is is um, I don't live there anymore, um, but I was formed there very much by um, the beauty of that community. And um, it's all thanks to my mom and my grandmother who raised me. And, um, you know, we were a small but mighty trio, uh, you know, living in Harlem at a time when it, it didn't look and feel very much like it it does today. Uh, there was a very strong sense of community, um, but definitely pockets of that community that were very underserved economically and socially. Um, but but at the same time, you know, those of us who who, you know, lived in the same buildings, went to the same churches, et cetera, definitely felt like we we sort of needed to have each other's back. And so, you know, my mom was a single parent. Um, my relationship with my dad formed uh, later in my life, actually after my mom passed away, and my grandmother was was very much a part of you know my upbringing. So here were these two amazing women. Um, I think the farthest that my grandmother went in terms of her education was probably like you know eighth grade or something like wow. that, and, and my mom. Uh, you know, graduated from high school and immediately started working full time, you know, after that, both to support herself and 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 my grandmother and then eventually me. Um, so, you know, growing up in this community of, you know, solidly working class people, um, but who were proximate to the wealth um, that people associate in New York mm -hmm. um, was really interesting. Like it was a very interesting, you know, sort of time to grow up and see so much need and um, and so much sort of hope that was um, unmet in in Harlem, but then to get on the bus or to get on the subway, um, you know, two stops and be sort of in the middle of, you know, Fifth Avenue and Madison right. Avenue and, and all these places. It was really, really interesting. So, you know, my my mom and my grandmother emphasized you know, a lot of things that I think sort of have carried me through, definitely faith, belief in community, as I mentioned, but also um, ambition. And I know mm -hmm. that that can be a loaded word um, and some of us get to be ambitious and it's okay. And some others of us, um, when, you know, when we talk about ambition, sort of get the side eye, but I'm talking about ambition purely in the sense that, um, you know, while we had a lot that we were grateful for and gratitude was also something that was sort of a big part of, you know, uh, conversations and beliefs in my household, um, there was a lot that we saw you know, that was lacking. And so, and, and so from my mother and my grandmother, um, 
you know, they really firmly believed, and I think, you know, this is going to sound familiar, that like education was going to be the pathway yeah. for me to sort of break through um, a lot of the impediments that, that you know, were in front of me, in front of us, you know, living in Harlem at the time that we did and living in New York City and, and not having a lot of means. So thankfully, I was a good student and I was a little bit of a nerd. I still am. So <laughs> I, did, I didn't mind that they really emphasized education. I loved school. Um, I had great teachers. Um, but that was, you know, my mother was like, you have one job and it is to go to school and do the best you can. And, you know, um, and my, I, mo- my mother did the same thing. My, my mother what, didn't even make us. And this is unique, I think, particularly in a black family. Mm-hmm. My mother didn't make us do chores as mm-hmm. long as we had homework. Yeah. If there was something school related we had to do, we did not have to do any work around the house. So that was the same for me, Merle. Like my, so my grandmother, as I said, like helped to raise me and she loved being a homemaker. Um, and so I was the same. It was like focus on school, like know enough so that you, you know, you can take care of yourself eventually. Um, right. But, you know, she also loved doing everything. She also loved like throwing in my face and in my mother's face that like all she did was cook and clean up after us. But but it was really a labor of love for her. Um, but the emphasis on school and education just came so early on that I like it, I actually have to stop and think about it because it was just such a natural part of of, you know, my my upbringing. And it really was like, you know, go to school do the best that you can. Your best will always be good enough for us. Um, and and it will create a better life for you. And it wasn't so much that it was about like financial success or anything like that, but it was really like to see the world and mm-hmm. to have a bigger world than I think, you know, either of, of them had. So um, were, you, were you a big reader? Because how, how did you even yeah. get... So, get interested in journalism and 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 that so that you know that i wish so yes i read i wasn't like a voracious reader as a as a kid i am i was and still am like the ultimate rule follower so one of the things <laughs> i loved about school was like okay this is what you have to read and this is what you have to do and i always did the work and naturally there were some things that were more interesting to me you know than others i did love reading i did love like you know studying the social sciences. I love the languages, et cetera. Math, chemistry, not so much, but but I did okay. Um, But I think the way that I ended up interested in journalism, so when I went to college, for example, I didn't go in thinking, oh, I want to be a journalism major. I actually went to college and again, you know, first in my family, at least on that side of my family that had ever made it to college. And so I knew I had to pick a major at some point. And I thought, well, I think I want to be a lawyer. And I think people mm-hmm. who go to law school are political science majors. So that's what I'm going to do, right? Because that's what I read. That's what I heard. And so that's what I did. And I actually did not like studying political science at all. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was very clear, you know, after my first couple classes. Um, And so I just sort of stumbled into um, journalism. I saw that there were journalism courses offered at NYU and I thought, well, that seems interesting. And I love to write. That was one thing that I, I did pick up early on was this love of writing. And so I thought, well, like I like to write and I'm pretty good at it. So like I'll study, you know, I'll take a few journalism courses and write some articles and, you know, improve my writing even further. And that'll be, that'll be that. 
when I took the first couple classes and I took both broadcast journalism um, as well as print journalism, I realized that it was about much more than writing, right? That in order to write articles about, you know, any topic that sort of came up that you were assigned, you had to be a student of that, you know, of either the, of the subject, right? Whether it was mm-hmm. a person or news development and this idea of like, you know, kind of getting smarter about different people or different topics um, kind of on the fly was really, really interesting to me. So, you know, part of our curriculum, you know, when I was at NYU was, you know, our our professors would say, okay, today you're going to go into the East Village and you're going to find three people to talk about, you know, this new ordinance that affects, you know, the opening hours of, you know, such and such park. And you're going to get sort of the quote man on the street. feedback on this new ordinance and you're going to write a story about it and and then we're going to talk about it so i am like you know half the time i'm using the ordinance but it could be anything that was happening in the local news if i hadn't heard about it i had to you know figure out what was actually going Mm -hmm. on and we didn't have the google uh at that time i'm exposing my (laughs) age a little bit so you know you had to do actual you know you had to do research and talk to people and find you know news articles etc and then go talk to people and you know as an introvert that was a little bit scary you Um, sound like an introvert to me well (laughs) i am i actually am Um, so let let me ask you this let me let me ask you this so having been starting in journalism and had that education and you know it was a while ago and you know what do you um and again we're gonna bs here so we're gonna get off topic we're gonna talk about different things i'm gonna like you're gonna say something i'm gonna say okay i need to know about this (laughs) so what do you think of the current state of journalism and news and you know this this mm-hmm. idea that you know it's so slated one mm-hmm. in one either one direction or the other i mean does that yeah. worry you concern you or no when i think about the state of it now i do get worried i i do worry that you know, as you pointed out, there are some channels you go to for one perspective and there are other channels you go to or other outlets you go to for another perspective and that it's hard to ever find in one kind of outlet a, a, a balanced view. And 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 look, look, a lot of a lot of that is the state of the world. And one could say, well, well, you know, the journalists are just kind of covering, you know, the the state of our society. But mm-hmm. I actually think that that somehow that the way that news is covered actually reinforces the yeah. division in our society. And it is very, very uh, challenging for those of us who kind of want to take in all the facts and all of the perspectives and form our own opinions yes. to be able to do that with kind of the way that a lot of mainstream media, um, you know, covers news, you know, in a different time, um, there was more balance. And like, look, I love the fact that many news outlets are much more diverse. And so we are bringing in, you know, different perspectives and voices that, you know, we didn't have call it, you know, 20, even 10 years ago. So that's all been for the positive, but it, it, it feels a little less like news and a lot more like, you know, different people's opinions about what the news is. And so much of it is mean, right? I mean, I actually, they're, you know, I'll call it out Twitter. I mean, I got off of Twitter a long time ago. I'll I'll read stuff every now and then, Mm -hmm. but 
it was just so mean. It was like, why is, you know, it's like, I don't, I don't need to this influx of just vitriol, you know, in just like small bites, just small bites of just, you know, hatred, you know? Yeah, that's the thing. And like, on the one hand, you know, social media has been great in that it has democratized, you know, sort of access to information in a way that, you know, should ultimately be helpful. But I do think that, you know, too much of a good thing and and certainly applies here can can actually be bad because you have folks who don't know how to use these platforms um, responsibly. and yeah, kind of use them to exercise, you know, all the demons that they are carrying around, um, you know, in their personal lives. And it, it's it's harmful. And I especially worry about that piece um, in terms of, you know, younger people. Yeah. Um, and again, a whole other conversation to be had on in, on that topic. So let's move on. <laughs> so you didn't yes. even know you'd be having that conversation. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, so you... Uh, decided to go to law school. You said you wanted to go to law. You always thought you wanted to go to law school. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you did go to law school, but then you decided mm-hmm. some for some reason not to practice. How did that happen? Yeah. So, um, you know, as I it, this really sort of starts again earlier in my in my life. You know, you get the question, oh, what do you want to be? And um, and again, I grew up at a time where you know, my identity as a member of the black community was was very salient. It it still is, but but again, growing up in New York and and in the way that I described earlier, um, you know, it 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 was always clear to me that you know my black I my blackness was a salient part of my experience. How I think I was viewed by the world, and especially as a black. A uh, person coming of age, not particularly, you know, um, well resourced financially, et cetera. So as I thought about what I wanted to do, and again, you know, thinking about all of the hopes and expectations that my mother and grandmother placed on me, um, you know, it's like, okay, what are the noble professions? Teaching, you know, being a lawyer, being a doctor, um, you know, doing something, um, you know, that's civic minded. And so I, I decided that law was going to be it for me. Again, I, I, mm-hmm. you know, I did like to read. I certainly love to write. I learned about, you know, folks like. Thurgood Marshall and so many others and thought, well, that that's what I, you know, I want to do. And, you know, like most parents, my mother heard that and was like, that's what you're going to do. Right. And so (laughs) it's always kind of understood that I would go through school and that I would be a lawyer. And it was sort of unquestioned. And um, my mom passed away unexpectedly when I was 17. And it was just before I was starting about to start college. And so as I said, you know, I thought about college, and I'm like, I'm going to go, I'm going to be a lawyer. So I'm going to major in political science, and that's going to be my my path. And I discovered journalism. I also discovered um, art while I was at NYU, um, you know, uh, visual arts in particular, and developed a really um, deep love and appreciation um, for the arts in that way. But as I was then thinking about, well, what else could I possibly do? You know, art was sort of off the table. My dad, you know, at the time said, you know, those spaces aren't created for, you know, someone like you, i.e., you know, a young black woman, you don't really right. see many of you in 
arts administration. And, and you can't make any money, honey. And you, can, and you really can't make said. any money, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> and to be clear, it wasn't as a performing artist or, you know, an artist myself, but really thinking about it sort of from a, a business perspective. And he was like, yeah, no, those spaces aren't, you know, made for you oh, and you won't, you won't make money. So um, I fell in love enough in love with journalism that I pursued opportunities there, but there was always this feeling that, okay, you always said you were going to go to law school. And because my mom had passed away and that was sort of the agreement that we had, I felt like I really needed to make good on that pledge to to see that through. Um, and so I, you know, went to the Wall Street Journal. I planned to stay maybe three years. I ended up being there for at least a good four years before I decided, okay, you know what, you've got to get yourself into law school. You've got to do this. And it wasn't just a sentimental, you know, promise that I had, you know, made to my mom. It really was, this is a, a really wonderful profession and there's so many great things I can do and accomplish and contribute. This is what I want to do. And so let me just do it. Mm-hmm. And I, I loved law school. I mean, really? I hated it. <laughs> so what I loved about it again was like the intellectual rigor. I loved it also because I met a really, really great group of friends while I was in law school. Many of them, you know, members of Balsa, one of whom is, you know, one of my very best friends to this day. I'm the mother to her God to I'm the godmother to her children. Is she practicing? Uh yes, yeah, she is practicing. Well, give her a shout out. I will. Hey, Ernestine. Uh, (laughs) So, um, so, but I still was like, okay, I'm here for all the wrong reasons, right? I love the Mm -hmm. education. I I do love, you know, all the, the things that, you know, law and lawyers, you know, stand for in our society, but I don't really think this is my jam. And so, Mm um, I made the decision though, to finish law school because I thought a complete law degree made a lot more sense than having an incomplete law degree. And certainly, you know, I had to pay the loans back. So I I felt like, again, it was it was just it made more sense to to go, you know, to complete it and to complete my degree and then um, either practice for a little while, which I did consider. Um, or do something else. And the something else was going back into, you know, journalism, media, communications. I still had really strong connections with people that I worked with at the journal. I tried several times while I was there to actually quit. And they were like, well, rather than quit, why don't you just cut your hours down? You can work as much or as little as you want, which was, you know, such a positive message to me about how much I was valued and, you know, how much I contributed. And so I I, I kept that connection going. In fact, one of my best mentors um, at the Wall Street Journal, Dow Jones, had been a practicing corporate lawyer uh, earlier in his career before he switched over uh, to head up um, to be part of the senior news editor and then eventually head up um, investor relations and communications at Dow Jones. So he understood a little bit about, you know, um, here are some other things you can do, you know, sort of post law school. Um, And that was, it was a really, really influential relationship for me. So I did, I was after law school, I went back to work at Dow Jones and I was there for a little bit before I went off to work for um, a, a job that really seemed to combine all of the things, right? It was 
for uh, a premier legal publishing company. So it was law, but it was also journalism and communications and um, was sort of, you know, my first opportunity leading a space. Um, culturally, it wasn't a great fit for me. And so uh, after about a year or so, I was very tempted to go back to Dow Jones when I met a, somebody who eventually became my boss and then my friend um, who worked at Skadden and persuaded me to think about doing communications as as part of uh, the marketing and communications team at Skadden. So, so that's that, a heck of a place to land, right? <laughs> just you just you just like like land at the I, top places all the time. I think about that a lot, Merle, especially because, again, I was just kind of feeling my way through, like, my career. People say, oh, like, you've had great experiences. You know, what what was your strategy or, you know, wh how did you think about it? And I'm like, my strategy was to just do the best job I could and with every opportunity that I was, you know, given or that I earned, I guess is a better way to say right. it. And I didn't really have models for, you know, professional success in that in my life. You know, it's again, my mother and grandmother were incredibly hardworking, um, but they didn't inhabit, you know, spaces like Dow Jones and the Wall Street Journal and Skadden or right. even NYU or Brooklyn Law School. And so, you know, I had to believe that the the hard work was a big part of how I how I landed in those spaces. But then it was just like, I don't know. It, it, I, I don't wanna just chalk it up to serendipity, um, but I do think that um, there was just something guiding me that was, you know, uh, and and then motivating me to do a great job, right? Because there was also this feeling of like, well, wherever you are, you, you know, you reflect on your family. Uh, you reflect on those two women who poured so much into you uh, if you're not going to do a great job, no one's going to say it's for lack of effort and like work ethic, et cetera. And so I feel incredibly fortunate and and blessed with so many of the opportunities I, I had. And, and but, when but, I try to. Let, yeah. But let me ask you something, because yeah. coming from your background and I and, you know, uh, I'm sure my listeners are tired of hearing me. I'm from Compton. Right. I, I so yeah. so coming from your background. You know, it makes it even that much more uh, interesting to me that you've been able to uh, negotiate these spaces um, and really kind of you must have had some kind of you to me, you either had to have some kind of sponsor or somebody who you, who you modeled, you, you modeled and you just said you didn't have that or there was something about you in your DNA where you just understood or understand how to negotiate those spaces and how to really how to get along. Cause for me, that was the the hardest thing. It was just like a fish out of water yeah. and yeah. not really understanding it's, you know, that you have to be, you know, be maybe two different people. 
Yeah, I mean, look, the the whole, you know, notion of code switching is yes. real for people who have, you know, our backgrounds. And, you know, people also talk a lot about imposter syndrome. And I always struggled a little bit with that concept because imposters, yes, I had some of it at, di- at different points because I, you know, I did feel like, well, how did I land, you know, at one of the best law firms in the world? Or how did I land at, you know, one of the right. premier, you know, you know news uh, uh, outlets in the world? I'm not sure. Again, I think it's a lot of hard work. I think it was, you know, it's not even that I had a tremendous amount of self-confidence as in fact, it was probably the opposite. I did walk into a lot of these spaces thinking like, how did I get here? But <laughs> at the same time, um, I'm like, well, I'm here. And again, it was really this fear that like, you can't mess up. So I am going to watch, you know, what the people who are quote successful here do and I'm going to try to be like them except and I did right I was like okay that's what I want to do or that's what I have to do to be successful as long as it was ethical I was I was there You're down <laughs> right. All right but at the at a certain point, I'm like, oh, this doesn't really fit me so well, right? Like, the, you know, taking on this persona, like, yes, this part fits, but this part over here doesn't. And I'm probably not going to be able to sustain this if I have to keep on like this part of the like corporate outfit. And so I really did have to figure out how eventually to like bring much more of, you know, my best self to these spaces um, and present, you know, with confidence, with curiosity. I feel like when I do think about the common denominators, you know, I think there is a lot of curiosity that I bring to just life. I'm interested in people. I'm interested in their stories. I'm interested in how, you know, you know, people got to where, you know, they were and what I could learn from, from their stories and, and a genuine interest, right. And interested in how just different things work. And so I do think that, demonstrating a level that level of curiosity and and like commitment right and i would always say to to folks as i sort of progressed in my career and would start to mentor people you know one of the things that that those of us who are in leadership positions like like to see is that you know, the people who work with them or report to them actually care about what they're doing. You might not actually, actually care, but you want to leave me and others with the impression that you care about the work and you care about the output and you care about how the work gets done. I can deal with that and and maybe with somebody who isn't like a top performer so much more than I can deal with somebody for whom maybe things come easily, but they just kind of mail everything in. Like, and, right. and so most leaders you know, I think share that that same view. And I think that that was just something I naturally exhibited in terms of, you know, really being all in um, as a team member, as an individual contributor. Um, and I think that that attracted, you know, attention to me um, by people who could make a difference, you know, in my career and in my um my development and it helped me to attract great mentors and and eventually sponsors so um you know what i you know what i look for i look for when i work with other people i look for do they pay enough attention to actually not make the same mistake again you know Mm -hmm. like like you know it's like did they because it's like kind of like what you're talking about mailing it in right you know if 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 you're working with somebody and you take the time 
you know, to correct something or make a suggestion or something like that. And and then they just do the same thing again. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, they, then it kind of goes to what you're saying about it's like, do they really care? Yeah. And and it's like if you don't care, like you don't like you don't even have to care that you don't you don't have to care specifically about me. You don't have to care about about, you know, like the company or whatever. But do you have enough self uh, uh, respect to to say, okay, I'm going to learn something from this situation and I'm going to be better? Right. Exactly. No, I think that's exactly right. And again, the motivation for me was just like, I knew what my life could have been, you know, um, and I, I just was so like, not going there. (laughs) Yeah, not going there. Right. And so um, I'm like, I'm in this spot. And so I've got and again, like, so one of the things that I will say sometimes when people do things that really make me scratch my head in terms of their behavior is like, who raised you? Um, and and the reason that that question comes to my mind is because, you know, I know who raised me and I know how much of an impact, you know, that has on, you know, when I use my outside voice and when I use my inside voice right. and, you know, what I will stand for and what I won't stand for. And, you know, something has my name on it. It has, you know, Anne and Elizabeth's name on it too. And so um, I just, you know, again, I, I think, losing both my mother and my grandmother at such an early stage in my life definitely um while devastating um also put so much wind um at my back and under my wings and so it's just like not doing my best was just never an option and so and that meant again like really just caring about what it is that you're doing and caring about the fact that like your name's attached to to something and um and that, again, it goes to what you were saying. It doesn't mean that you don't make mistakes. I made plenty of mistakes, right, and and learned the most from the times that I, I made those mistakes. But it's like then you care enough to try not to repeat the same mistakes um, along the way, and that's a lot of what I look at. That reminds me in a couple of ways. So I'm a golfer, and, <laughs> and um, I was out playing golf last week um, with my husband, and there was this group for your birthday, of birthday, perhaps for my birthday, yes. Mm-hmm. And and there was this group of young guys behind us, um, and and they kept hitting the ball. You know, if you're not a golfer, you may not know this, but it's common sense. If you're too close, you don't hit the ball because you might hit the people who are playing mm-hmm. in front of you. Mm-hmm. And they kept, they did this two or three times and, you know, we almost got hit by, you know, an errant ball because they weren't good enough to not hit us, you know, to, to <laughs> not do that. And so the first couple of times you just kind of, you know, duck. The second time, you know, you're like, okay, this is not cool. The third time I literally waited for the guy to come up and said, dude, you know, what, you know, you shouldn't do that. He's, well, I said four. And I said, no, you didn't, because I didn't duck. You know, if, if you had right. said four, I would have ducked. And, well, you just didn't hear me. I was like, exactly. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's not good enough. And you really should apologize. At this point, I wanted an apology, right. you know. Right. 
and you know, I have gray hair. It's like, you know, it's like, <laughs> you know, there's a certain amount of deference I feel like I've earned. Um, and he was like, I, I yelled for. And I said, but you should still apologize. I yelled for. Mm. I just said, you're, you're not going to apologize? He said, mm. I yelled for. And I looked at him and I said, I, I, I can look at you and I know your mama raised you better than that. <laughs> <laughs> and he didn't know what to say with that. He didn't know what to say to that. He just turned away and right. walked away. But guess what? They fell back and they didn't hit into us anymore. <laughs> oh my God. So, all right. So now you're at you're at um, the Lincoln Center for Performing Arts. This is what I'm really excited about, you know, because especially after hearing your story, right? It all seems to kind of come full circle for you. You're from Harlem. You know, you grew up there, you you know, you were very interested in the arts, you know, you have, you know, all of this, this uh, experience, personal experience and professional experience that, you know, talk to us about, you know, what you're doing now and where you're doing it and how that all, you know, comes together. Yeah, yeah. So the other really uh, cool thing about being at Lincoln Center is, and this is true for most New Yorkers, but certainly if you spend a lot of time on the Upper West Side, which I did, that's where my high school was located. Um, Lincoln Center is just always in the background of, you know, your life, right? And so mm-hmm. in those years, you know, ninth through 12th grade, I went, as I said, I went to school here in the Upper West Side and, um, you know, would come down to this area uh, after school and, you know, go to the record store. There was a Tower Records uh, a block away from where my office is now that my friends and I would go to a lot and, you know, just kind of hang out. And I would, you know, see Lincoln Center. It's an iconic campus. There's a fountain, um, you know, right on the, the main plaza that, that you know, folks, when you think of Lincoln Center, you you think yep. of the plaza and the fountain, and so it was it was always there as a part of my life. But I never felt or thought, you know, again just based on where I was coming from, that there was much happening inside of Lincoln Center that was for me, or I should say that was accessible to me, mm-hmm. either because I didn't necessarily understand um, the opera or, um, you know, classical music, you know, and it, again, it just wasn't something that I was I was raised around. And even to the extent I was curious about it, I thought, well, there are a million other things that, you know, my family will spend money on before, you know, we're able to buy tickets for a performance at Lincoln Center. But mm-hmm. nonetheless, Right. It's just it's such a beautiful place that that draws you in, um, at least on the outside. And so um, when the opportunity arose to to come here, um, I was like, wow, that like that would be really cool. Right. Because I still remember the conversations with my father about how it, it would just never happen for me um, as a leader or, or an, you know, an arts administrator, because that's those those jobs didn't go to, to people with with my background. Um, but even then, right, as an adult and everything that I had accomplished as a professional, I'm like, oh, I, you know, it probably won't happen for me. But, man, it would sure be, you know, cool if it did. And the other reason why I was really drawn to the opportunity was because the Lincoln Center that exists today has made a lot of strides, right, to sort of just. Dis- 
dispel a lot of the feelings that other people like me had about, you know, who Lincoln Center was for and who it wasn't. Mm -hmm. So we've embarked on a real commitment uh, around DEI, both in terms of how we show up to the community and how we show up in New York City as a place for all and where everyone should see themselves, but also internally in terms of our leadership, you know, being incredibly diverse and, you know, really making an effort around diversity, equity, and inclusion in terms of our hiring. Um, and so that was really meaningful to me. My role here is also pretty cool because DEI will always be sort of, you know, critical to me as something that all institutions should be pursuing. But but my role here is talent generally. And I actually think that that is both wonderful because it does sort of open up, you know, my world and my ability to have impact um, on the institution more broadly in terms of how we think about talent, how we treat our people um, across the board. But specifically with respect to DEI, right, having a seat at the table as a member of leadership, you know, having the responsibility for thinking about talent and HR more broadly means that I I am I am in the spaces where I need to be so that I'm making sure that we're still centering our goals around diversity, equity and inclusion. What sometimes happens and you hear from, you know, really talented chief diversity officers is that they either, you know, don't have the line of sight that they need to really have an impact within their organizations because people are still thinking of diversity, equity, and inclusion in a silo, or, you know, other business leaders haven't really learned how to engage around DEI. And so the chief diversity officer can sometimes feel like they're a bit isolated. And when when we have these seats where we're kind of in the, you know, kind of mainstream of operations. You're at the table, right? At the table, you can you can you can be effective, right? You can find yourself helping the team make better decisions up front as opposed to, you know, leaders coming to you after a decision after, has been made yeah. to say like, oh, we think we may have gotten this wrong or we didn't think of this from a DEI perspective. Can you help us? And so it, it's really it's it it's a, it was a great next step. I, I didn't really ever see myself, you know, being um, outside of the legal profession and frankly outside of Skadden it was a place where I had a tremendous career I had many careers within the same firm and and all of it was incredibly rewarding but I think like so many other people especially when you get to a certain stage in your career you do start to think about how you can have an impact in a sort of broader way um, on the world and in in this this place has definitely given me that opportunity so still early days um, but it's it's great what a what a place to do it. I mean, you know, because I'm like, oh, did you get to go to the Salon Ballet? <laughs> did you? I Sadly, know. I did not get to go to that particular gala, but I will <laughs> be seeing um, that performance by the New York City Ballet in May. Um, so I am I am very excited. Oh, I want to go. <laughs> okay, well, we have an extra ticket, so just. Keep me posted. I, I I need to I I remember when I was in um when I was in law school I I did a summer because I always thought I wanted to live in New York and I still would love to if I felt like I could afford to live in the way I would want to live in New York but um I was summering and you know we had tickets to everything and and we went to a I got to go to performance at the Lincoln Center. I mean, it was just amazing, perform- amazing, amazing. And I just remember thinking, 
you know, this doesn't, this is New York. You know, this is New York only. You know, you have performances, you have performing arts in other places, but there's mm. nothing like, you know, New York. But it, it sounds like, I mean, you know, you grew up in, you grew up in Harlem, Harlem and the Lincoln Center. We're probably, you know, drawing more of our our audiences and frankly our artists, um, you know, from Harlem and and other communities um, like it around New York City. Um, we've also um, established some partnerships with with some you know real Harlem institutions like the Schomburg um, Library is is working with us on work that we're doing to try to, to, to tell the stories of San Juan Hill. Um, mm -hmm. San Juan Hill was a community that existed on the land that Lincoln Center, on and around the land that Lincoln Center uh, um, occupies. And before Lincoln you know, Center was built, again, it was a community of mostly, you know, black and brown people and families and similar to other kind of urban planning initiatives that happened back in the 50s and 60s, that community was displaced so that Lincoln mm -hmm. Center could be built. And again, to this institution's, you know, credit, we are, instead of, you know, trying to, you know, mask that part of, of our history, we're really leaning into it and looking for ways to tell the stories um, about the legacies of San Juan Hill. Awesome. So, you know, we're really, we're getting close to the end of our time. I'm like, we could just talk forever here. Um, but let me ask you this, you know, this is a podcast about getting beyond stereotypes and about embracing your authenticity uh, and, you know, telling your story about, you know, when you've insisted on being uniquely you. Um, I mean, that's kind of three questions all in one, but you know, can you, you know, do you have like a, a like kind of a, a idea of when that when that has happened for you and how it has helped you in your life? Yeah, I mean, they're probably there. It's more of a composite, you know, of examples, I think, over the, you know, kind of arc of my career, particularly in the past couple of years. Um, you know, as I said early on, you know, a lot of times, especially earlier in my career, um, I would kind of look around and figure out, okay, what is what does it mean to be successful here? What are the attributes and characteristics, et cetera? Um, you know, how do, is it that I do my part? There are a whole bunch of other things we know institutions need to do to, to be welcoming um, uh, and fertile ground for, for people from underrepresented backgrounds. Um, but, but, you know, there's a, a part that we play in that too. Um, but I would say probably around oh, I don't know, maybe 10 years or so ago, COVID sort of has distorted my sense of time. Um, <laughs> so it's either 10 years or like five. Um, right. But as I found myself more and more um, in situations where, you know, I was giving, you know, leaders at my firm advice on how to handle, you know, certain situations around, you know, talent or performance and and usually with an overlay of, of you know, DEI, I realized you know, I'm able to actually use my experience and my perspective to help, you know, people who are very successful, um, but who have a very kind of limited 
view of the world because of how, you know, they've grown up as part of the mainstream. They haven't had to know, you know, the uh, as much about the experience of a black person or a person of color or a first gen professional because the world is sort of you know, based on their experience. Yeah. I, on the other hand, have had to know how to navigate, you know, my community, my life as a, a Black person, as a woman, as a first-gen professional, and, you know, kind of the larger mainstream um, community. And so, you know, my cultural kind of competence index is much higher than it is for somebody who maybe hasn't had to learn, you know, the way that that people from other communities live. And so I actually have something really meaningful to bring to the table and mm -hmm. it doesn't help the, the people that I'm working with and it doesn't help the cause overall if I hold back on sharing the perspective. And I really started to lean into that again because I'm like, okay, you know, I'm 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 in entering a certain age and stage in my life when I can only bring my full self, you know, the best parts of my full self um to these kinds of interactions and conversations. And at the end of the day, this is actually what the work is all about. Mm -hmm. And people will respect you for um you know, being willing to engage in the hard things and the uncomfortable things, um, even if they don't agree with you fully or they don't agree with you at first, um, they will respect you and value you more because they're getting another perspective from you that they won't get necessarily from other people. And so I've I certainly embrace that in terms of the DEI work. Um, mm -hmm. And I think it's just become much more a part of my leadership style overall, you know, and and it actually makes it a lot more fun. Yeah. Um, and and that, you know, that's that that's my journey. I'm still on that journey. Um, <laughs> and again, it goes back to, you know, what I said earlier about the introvert in me and the part of me that's kind of always questioning, like, how did I get here? Um, and um, and I don't worry, like, well, how long will it be before I'm found out, right? Which is a big part of the imposter syndrome. But it's more like, you know, if this is a place that doesn't value this part of me, then I'm I'm not in the right place and I'll find, you know, someplace else. Uh, and That's having amazing. The, the confidence and courage to 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 get to that point has been really, really amazing. And that's I was I'm glad you used the word courage because that was going to be my final question is yeah. like, you know, it, it, what role do you feel that courage plays uh, in the serendipity <laughs> that that you've experienced and how how do you know do you encourage people to yeah. to find that courage yeah i mean i think again it goes back to really being clear that you if you come from a place or a background where you know you don't have you know all the access that that you see other people in other communities have right you you just have to know that you're worthy of that right and so then that does sort of give you the courage and courage doesn't mean you know boldly walking into spaces like a lot of times like you literally are like the duck on water and you're just gliding along but you are pedaling you know furiously mm -hmm. below the surface just trying to keep up and trying to figure out what's going on um and and that's courage too, right? And so I I think it plays a huge role. And I think that um it it's just it, it it takes time and you do have to find the right rhythm for you, but you just 
it's almost like you don't have an option. And the other thing I would say about the courage is, you know, for a lot of us who didn't grow up with privilege, you sort of have to be an entrepreneur, right? And by that, I don't mean you, you have your own like business. I mean, you just have to have an entrepreneurial attitude to how you're going to seek opportunities and build your craft and, you know, build your network. And that also means, you know, having that that attitude and not feeling like any you're that you're necessarily going to get all the things in life that you want mm-hmm. kind of makes you feel like, okay, well, if this doesn't work out, and frankly, there were times when I'm like, this is probably not going to work out. Cause like, what about our society says this is going to work out for me, right. but if it doesn't, right. It just means that I have to go on to the next thing. And that is probably one of the things that I think has propelled me um, a fierce desire to do well and to do my best, but also recognizing my best might not be good enough. And if it's not, like, I'll just keep trucking. Um, right. and, and I think that has has played a big role for me. And it's something I try to encourage other, you know, people um, to think about as well. Like, you know, at the end of the day, it you you own your career and you own your life and your experience. And there are so many systemic barriers for sure. I'm not at all naive or mistaken about that. But at the end of the day, I also believe that the creator has given each of us everything we need um, to succeed in life. And it's just a matter of finding the right ways and and seizing the opportunities to help um, really cultivate, you know, those gifts and and create the life that that you want. Hear, hear. Amen. Uh, And I'm sure what your mother and grandmother's names were. Anne and Elizabeth. I'm sure Anne and Elizabeth are applauding um, their baby girl right now. I I, I certainly am. I'm, I have goosebumps and I'm almost brought to tears. <laughs> uh, um, but, you know, I really, really, really appreciate, you know, you're taking the time to impart all, you know, you know tell, tell your story, talk about your journey. Uh, and impart, you know, your authenticity uh, and excellence um, on this podcast. And um, I really, really, really appreciate you. Oh, I appreciate you as well, Merle. And I can't wait to see you. I know. <laughs> I get, get the, save me a ticket. <laughs> yes, but, I will. I will. You got it. But thank you, Malik, thank for, you. for being here to BS with me today. Oh, I wouldn't want to BS with anybody else. Thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. And and thanks to everyone for listening. And until the next episode, remember that everybody is different and different is good. Hit it. That's what I'm talking about. Wait. Okay, now, from the beginning. We hope you enjoyed the stories shared in today's episode of BS. Beyond Stereotypes. Join us next time when another authentic personality unleashes their uniqueness on the world.